While money can't buy you happiness, it certainly lets you choose your own form of misery. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Howdy ho, my lovely shit shows. Today, we are diving deep with Jen Kirkman. You may remember her from the Chelsea Handler show. She is a comedian. She's an actress. She's a writer. She's actually currently writing on the new season of of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and she is an adult child fan. So a few months ago, I was on Instagram and I saw that I had a new follower that had a tiny little blue check mark next to their name, my first uh, unprovoked blue check mark follower. And I saw that it was Jen. So I immediately shot her a DM and said, oh my God, I'm such a huge fan. And she wrote back and said that she was a fan of the pod. And so I said, let's get you on the damn show. So I am talking to her about a bunch of things one of which being under-earning. Now, this is something that I've been wanting to dig into. We've talked some about compulsive debting. We've talked some about uh, Debtors Anonymous, but we have not talked about under-earning and the 12-step program Under Earners Anonymous. Um, I have been wanting to read into this more. I mean, I could generally surmise what the gist of of under-earners was, but I wasn't completely sure. So... I did a little research for y'all, and uh, I found a pamphlet that kind of is explaining Under Earners Anonymous and what it's all about. So I wanted to read a little bit from it. So it says, Under earning is many things, not all of which are about money. Under earning is about underachieving or under being, no matter how much money we make. It is about the inability to fully acknowledge and express our capabilities and competencies. The visible consequence is the inability to provide for one's needs, including future needs. Our under-earnings can result from many things, including not acknowledging our talents. It can result from living on the edge by not making enough money, spending most of the money we have, avoiding healthy risks that can move our lives forward, and not preparing for the future. Under-earning is about not living up to our unique potential, not following through on our dreams and goals. It is about giving up on ourselves. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, and then it breaks down some symptoms of under-earning. I'll include in the show notes a link to this. I'm not going to read all of the symptoms, but I just want to touch upon a few. So uh, one is time indifference. We put off what must be done and do not use our time to support our own vision and further our own goals. Uh, Idea deflection. We compulsively reject ideas that could enlarge our lives or careers and create profitability. Uh, A compulsive need to prove. Although we have demonstrated competence in our jobs or businesses, we are driven by a need to reprove our worth and value. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? Giving away our time. We compulsively volunteer for various causes or give away our services without charge. 
when there is no clear benefit. And not following up. We do not follow up on opportunities, leads, or jobs that could be profitable for us. We begin many projects and tasks, but often do not complete them. I could totally relate to that. Um, And the last one is stability boredom. We create unnecessary conflict with coworkers, supervisors, and clients, generating problems that result in financial distress. Um, The other thing that it says, it says, an under earner is a person who hides from life. Many of us hide for years in the dissatisfaction of our circumstances. We do work that may allow us to eke out a living, but doesn't truly serve us. Even though we may be angry and depressed by our work, we feel powerless to explore other options and take actions that would enable us to change, grow, and express ourselves more fully. Now, God, I could relate to so much of this, and it's very poignant for where I am at currently in my own life. So this Friday is my last day um, at my job, and I am stepping into this full time. Um, It's really scary, guys. It's scary, but it's also really exciting. Um, I don't really know what the future holds. There's a lot of fear of financial insecurity. There's also a lot of hope and a lot of signs from the universe that um, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. You know, in a strange way, I feel more held by the universe than than ever before. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know how this is all going to pan out. Um, you know, I'm really just going to be focusing on growing this. And I want to let you all know that I'm, I'm moving forward on creating a recovery and addiction podcast network that really just focuses on connecting through authentic and vulnerable storytelling, you know, and, and also adding an element of humor because I think that that's so important too. So yeah, I mean, I feel like you guys are as much a part of this journey as as I am. Um, and I'm so grateful that I have you all to, you know, support me and and lift me up and hold my hand as I as I really try to to step into my purpose. And, you know, that's like the big message that I have from this podcast. And I'll continue to say over and over again, you know, this is this is about healing. You know, this is about stopping the chains of dysfunctional family systems. Uh, But this is also about living in our purpose and being the highest and the very best versions of ourselves and living the lives that we truly, truly deserve to live. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm experimenting in all of that. So thank you so much for all your love and support. And, uh, I need y'all's help more than ever before. So, you know, ways that you can be of service to me is, you know, to join the Patreon. Uh, that's where I host virtual peer support groups twice a week. I'm going to start doing more of them. As of now, they're on Thursday nights at 515 Pacific time. And Sundays at 12.30 Pacific time. If you're somebody that wants to join the Patreon and those times don't work for you, please 
hit a girl up and tell me sometimes that would be good for you because, you know, I want to I want to make them um, accessible and available to as many people as possible. Uh, so that's one way that you can help me. You can also head on over to um, buymeacoffee.com. You can give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify, as you know. Uh, you can also go and follow me on Instagram and TikTok. I've really had some good TikTok success. It's been harder to um to grow my Instagram. So uh, I usually say this at the very end of the podcast, but for those of you who maybe don't get to the end, if you could please follow me on Instagram, I'm at Adult Child Pod. Um, I love you guys so much. I love you guys so much. This has been such a incredible, surreal, profound magical journey for me. I'm so incredibly grateful for all of y'all that I've been able to connect with and so many of you now that I call friends. So yeah, I just, I I want you all to know that like truly from the bottom of my heart, I am so fucking grateful for each and every one of you, even those who aren't a big fan of my cursing. (laughs) And I will stop uh, trying to sell you shit now, and let's talk to Jen. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a comedian, writer, actress and a new friend um jen kirkman to the podcast hi welcome hi thanks for having me i'm super excited i love your pod totally have listened to it before um we met (laughs) and i'm proud to be on it totally you're like i I promise i've listened to it i'm not just one of those people that you get all those fucking emails they're like i love your podcast um when they're writing for somebody else to come on the show they're like i love your podcast so and so would love to be on it i'm like you've never listened to my fucking podcast no i know i have a, (laughs) a podcast where i interview people about anxiety but then i have another solo comedy podcast and people will write that one and say um, I love your podcast. I think I'd be a great guest. I was like, really? On the solo podcast? Like, I never had a guest? guest like, I'm, I'm sure you love it. I'm sure yeah. you love it. <laughs> <laughs> you were my first person to follow me that had like a blue check mark. I was like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I made it, baby. I have arrived. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, so let's pull up. So you, you were obviously familiar with the term adult child. When did you yes. first learn the term? Pretty recently. I mean, I've been in therapy. Let's say I'm 47 now. Been in therapy since I was 20. I've dabbled in every kind of 12-step group. I've had anxiety disorder, panic disorder, blah, blah, blah. And the only 12-step I haven't been in is drug and alcohol because they don't have the disease of addiction. But Boring. I know. I'm totally boring. But I have dabbled in other things, and I always enjoy like a partial spiritual solution to my um, other stuff. But my point is I didn't find adult child until like three or four years ago in New York. And I normally, I was like living in LA at the time, but going to New York for a job and I wanted to go to a meeting and I, I never really clicked with Al-Anon. Um, I don't have alcoholics in my immediate family. And so I didn't have that thing of, you know, I don't know, like falling for alcoholics, trying to fix people or dads coming home drunk. I didn't have any of that, but I definitely had like family 
dysfunction and honestly wasn't sure the level of dysfunction I had. Like, I don't know if to, to me, my family dysfunction is my parents have undiagnosed and untreated anxiety and it's, it manifests in their relationship with each other, in their relationship to money, in their relationship to people, in their relationship to responsibilities. And so like I, they modeled the behaviors I eventually took out into the world. And so, um, and that's not to, you know, I, I don't know if they're listening, but you know, it's always hard because I'm like, oh, you know, they're older now. And it's like, I've tried to explain this stuff to them where it's like, not your fault either. Like, you know, it's all good, but I need to get new tools because it was, you know, like they, they grew up with, sorry, I'm like going on, but like my parents right. met in high school, they got married, they had a family. And in a weird way, it's like, they weren't meeting as many people as I am and being in as many situations. And so like in a weird way, they could stay in any kind of like weird reactive behavior, if that makes sense. Like I, the way my life is so different than theirs where I'm traveling, I'm performing. I'm one day, my job is working with these people in show business. One day, my job is over here. I'm, I'm dating a lot. I'm not married to my high school sweetheart. Like I have way more interpersonal interactions. My life looks different every year than they ever will. So I need to go and get tools and, you know, um, in that sense, it's not necessarily like, oh my God, they fucked me up so bad. But it was like, I am definitely a reactive person. So anyway, I went to Google, like, I, I literally don't know. I was like Google. Googling. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was like Googling like 12 step meetings in, in New York and ACA came up and I was like, the hell's ACA. And I looked at adult child of alcoholics and I started reading about it. And what I liked about it was from what I could tell was someone who felt like the same thing. They didn't totally relate to Al-Anon. Um, they didn't have all of the, the classic, you know, codependency of having to do with literal drugs and alcohol. And I thought, this is cool. And I ordered the red book and I brought it with me to a meeting and started reading it in the, this is what I do in meetings. I read and I journal. It's horrible because it probably looks like I'm not paying <laughs> attention, <laughs> but it's how I pay attention. It's like helps focus me. And anyway, but I just, the book is so brilliant that I was like, Oh, every person on the face of the earth should read this. I agree. And every therapist should incorporate it into their work. But anyway, so I first heard it not too long ago and I went to the meetings and I loved them. I found them to be um, at least this one I went to, which now I think doesn't exist because of COVID. It just seemed a lot of, um, I guess the words recovery, it was, it was uh, positive without being, you know, toxic positivity. <laughs> exactly. That weird look in, in your eye where it was you hopeful. Can't. It was hopeful. It's like people being like, oh, you know, I had this reaction today and this one I'm trying to work on and, but here's what I'm going to do about it. It wasn't like, this guys, this program has changed my life. And then yeah. they don't say how <laughs> it was like people just being like today sucks. Here's why I'm triggered, but I'm going to go work on it with this. Thanks for letting me share. Bye. You know, and, and, uh, and I liked that. And so I just, from there kind of, you know, didn't go to a ton of meetings and I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm not working the steps in it, but I, I really used a lot of the stuff from the red book in therapy and, and just, it just blew my mind and it helped me realize where a lot of my, uh, it just helped fill in the gaps that like some stuff with anxiety didn't. And it helped fill in the gaps of like some relationship stuff that, that was not love addiction. And it, it was, it even helped fill in the gaps of some stuff I'd had 
the first 12 step program I ever went to was Debtors Anonymous 20 years ago. It helped fill in what that was all about. Which I want to get into later. Yeah. Um, I think that it's so, it's just so freeing, you know, like when we yeah. realize that that's, you know, like what's going on and that we're not just like fucked up for no reason or just fucked up because we're fucked up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, it's funny though, because I have trouble with the word adult child only because I'm not even sure what I honestly like don't know what it means, if that makes sense. Like the way I look at it is I know this is not what it means, but when I was a child, I had, I felt like an adult and as an adult, I feel like a child, if that makes sense. I think what it, well, what it means, like, let's think about what it is, right? It's like children of alcoholics, children of, of dysfunctional families. Like we're now an adult, but like we were like, we're like an adult former child of an alcoholic. Right. It's like offsprings of dysfunction or whatever. Yeah. That makes sense. Because I was being very literal about it. I was like, well, when I was a child, I felt I felt like an adult because I was absorbing, you know, for me, it was like the 1980s, nuclear war. My parents were being very honest about the reality of that. There wasn't a sense of like, keep it from the kid, you know? And I felt like I just had the same problems the adults had. And then because of that, like ways I didn't learn to cope as an adult, I completely was like a reactive child <laughs> to a lot of stuff. <laughs> Well, when you think about it, let's think about like the word child. I mean, that doesn't like mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily like mean age, right? Like you're still your parent's child, even if you're 50. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm actually adding like a uh, pejorative to the word child, which I don't need to be doing, but it's sort of like that where I'm looking at it as like, yeah, you're, I'm having yeah. like, no, I think that's how yeah. a lot of people like take it. Yeah. Um, But it is, I mean, it's, I mean, we can be a recovering adult child, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like in my very first episode, how I said like, oh, is an adult child, somebody that's never moved out of their parents' basement. And it's like, yeah, right. like not literally, but like figuratively, so true. Yep. you know, so we kind of are like operating in the world rooted in those beliefs and fears and programming that was ingrained in us as kids. All right. Let's pull up the damn laundry list. Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Okay. So like when you read the laundry list for the first time, mm-hmm. like what were, what were like one or two of the traits that you were like, holy shit, that's me. Um, addicted to excitement. Number eight really stood out to me. And how did that manifest for you? You know, it's so funny because as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, was anything really that exciting? But I think, <laughs> you know, cause it's not like I'm skydiving, oh you know, mind. I just wanted that one to be applicable. It's actually not, it sounded cool. Uh, I didn't know you were going to ask me to explain how I related to it. <laughs> you know what I think? I think for me though, it was, it, it really resonated because I realized, you know, I'm always thrown off by the word addicted, but for me, it was like, I thrive in excitement and in drama and like that kind of elevator drop feeling in your stomach. Mm-hmm you all that was fine with me. And so if I was creating a mess and having to clean it up, mm-hmm. um, I was fine with it. At least I felt alive. There was a lot of, Oh, fuck it. At least I feel alive. You know, I, mm-hmm. so many times just being a young adult, like I had, you know, some good day jobs and I'd have like a little 401k and then I would just quit the job. Like I would just take the subway to work and go, no, I'm not going in and then just take it back home and quit, you know, and just like cash out my 401k and like live on that or like not know how much money I had in the bank and just like treat an ATM like a slot machine. Like what's going to happen now? And it was like, as even though that stuff wasn't exciting in a fun way, it was drama and 
that kind of thing. And then, you know, the addiction to excitement, like gossip or um, the drama of like unrequited love or like a crush on an inappropriate person or even a crush on an appropriate person, but kind of enjoying the that period more than the actually like connecting with them later, um, that kind of thing, or even just the way I did things, right? Like I'm going to move to New York to pursue comedy. I'm living in Boston. You know, let me just go like, you know, like not give two weeks notice at my job, not even tell my boyfriend, like, do you want to come with me? Just I'm going, you know, that kind of thing. Or instead of breaking up with someone, I'm going to cheat on them first and then never tell them I cheated and like break up with them. Or It was a lot of like quitting and leaving and like causing a trail of destruction and like that kind of thing. And I guess when I saw the thing of addicted to excitement, I really understood that addicted meant like that classic definition of addiction, which is like, it's not working anymore, but it's, it's like compulsive. It's all, you know, and that like, I must be getting something out of it. If I keep doing these things, even if I like, don't know any better, it really must be like, I remember because of all that nuclear war stuff and and this true belief, I'm not joking, a true belief that I would not live past the year 2000. Mm. So I, I had some weird superstitions about that when I was younger, that I just had a very fuck it attitude as even though I was crippled with anxiety on the other end of it and like wouldn't get on an airplane and wouldn't do this. It was my, uh, smoking when I had asthma, you know, it's, everything was just like, fuck it. So that's how I related to that. Um, judge ourselves harshly in a very low self-esteem. I, I didn't realize how bad my self-esteem was until maybe even like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I have low self-esteem anymore, actually. And I don't think I judge myself harshly, but I can, I'll go there really quickly. Very easy for me to get a ticket back to that town. Um, <laughs> I think definitely in the past, I don't think this is happening now, but terrified of it abandonment and we'll do anything to hold on to relationship in order to not experience painful abandonment feelings, which we, yeah. But see, I didn't relate to which we received from living with sick people who were never emotionally there for us. Like I don't, I'm really not in any kind of denial. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure that is my story, but, um, and then I think it was interesting. Like I had an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, but I swear to God, I was not more concerned with others than myself. Mm-hmm. It was more like people needing me, made me want to run. Like I really didn't relate to the codependent of like, let me jump in here and try to fix. It was more like, I have so much to do Like as a kid. Like, you know, I've got to heal the family as the youngest. And I've got to, uh, I don't know, cheer my parents up because they're afraid of war. Like, I guess I was concerned with them in that sense. But as I grew older, that, I was not that person. Like most of my friends, I don't even think would have thought to rely on me for anything, (laughs) you know? Well, I would say though, I would say that that in a sense is like a form. I mean, obviously I don't know like what the circumstances are, but yeah, for you to feel like you had that responsibility to like calm them down. I mean, that is like a form of like emotional abandonment, right? That you, yes, that's true. Yeah. You are having to be the one to fill that role when that's not your responsibility. 
yeah, and there was totally. something within you that was being, yeah, there was some, for some reason you took that on. I think like emotional neglect, maybe that's like a more appropriate term, but I think as kids, it's like, it's the same thing. I think emotional neglect feels like emotional abandonment to us. So going back to the addicted to the excitement stuff, yeah, you, know, you gave like a bunch of examples about like the money, the relationships, the quitting jobs. What are the roots of that? Like, when did that sort of behavior um, and decision-making start for you, like as a kid, where were the hmm. seeds of that? I'm not totally sure, but pr- like there's things that I'm like, I literally, literally cannot explain why I did this. Like, I don't know, but I'm just like, I was a very obedient kid, like took ballet with the number one thing my teacher always said was, even if you don't have the best form, like you take corrections, you're here on time, you do all- everything right. You know, that's, I feel like that's very adult childy too, in a way. Um, but, and like, I was such a goody goody at school, but also at the same time, uh, had this secret little desire to be the, the rebel or like the class clown kind of, but just not, well, just not good at it. Like I made myself (laughs) the target of such, of such teasing, and I had my friends, but the kids at school were like overall pretty mean. And so, I mean, I don't know if this is addiction to excitement, but like perfect example, we have this day at school where we have to bring in one of our talents. That's something we do outside of school. So I was taking piano lessons and I brought in this Mozart piece to play. Now, the movie Amadeus had just come out and Mozart was this like wacky guy and it was so funny and I was like obsessed with it. And I wanted to like be him. And so I came to school dressed as Mozart, but I was really being the guy from the movie. And I didn't bring a change of clothes. Like, it's just that simple. Like I put on a wig, but my mom helped me. She's like, we are going to put baby pad in the wig to make it look like you're like a zombie. I mean, they encourage me these weird things. And so I go to school dressed like Mozart, like literally not thinking the boys that beat you up every day, you're 10 years old that like hate you. This is going to not go well. I like every day, like a goldfish, like this will be great. And, and I don't think that's addiction to excitement, but like, just what was I thinking? And I went to school, <laughs> I played my Mozart and they totally made fun of me. And I sat there all day in the outfit. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, I love myself for that, but that kind of, but that's a picture. I, that is the saddest part about the eighties is like, no, we didn't have a camera, you know, it was like, oh, the disposables full, like whatever. But it's like, I don't know. It's like, but then I got bullied a lot. So it was like, I was always putting myself out there. Right. I was always like, I wrote a poem and read it to the class and the the boys made fun of me and the teachers sided with them. And I remember I would have these outbursts and I, I mean, I wasn't wrong though, but it was like, I would, I would yell at her about that. And then I would get sent to the principal's office. So it was this kind of like, what was bubbling was this like sense of injustice and, Mm. And so I would have this kind of disordered way of dealing with it, which is like, then I beat up a boy once and then I had to go to anger management, but they didn't. And so I think I liked kicking up the shit, you know, like I started to like doing that. And then it's like in high school, it's like, you know, the excitement. So I feel like it kind of started in earnest with just being a weird kid, but then the reactions I got fed some kind of drama that I was used to, like it didn't stop me to get in trouble. It didn't stop me to have adversity where people made fun of me, it made me want to do it more. 
Like I want them to make fun of me so bad so I can keep proving that they're horrible. Like, I don't know if that's, you know, that, but. Well, it's kind of what it's bringing up for me and it's a little bit different, but like the whole toxic shame piece. Mm. And like, so for me, like, you know, becoming like the school slut and becoming the girl that no one wanted to be friends with. It was like, you know, when, when toxic shame is internalized, it goes one of it, one of both either ways, either we shameless, uh, shameless acting in where we like avoid any subsequent shaming experiences or shameful acting out where we like lean into it. And so I almost wonder if there's some of that going on there. That that's a hundred percent it because that was like my big diagnosis I've worked on in therapy was the shame. And now when I see videos of myself from my twenties, I can see it in my face. Like I'm a completely different person. I don't even look the same. Like my face is different and it's like the shame has been removed and, and it was intense. Like when I look back, it's like not fun, you know, like it's, it's this bravado, but it's just shame. It's like beyond self-hatred. It is just, I was shame, you know? And so I think that's totally it. It's, it was that kind of thing. Um, and, and then from there, I think the addiction to excitement was just probably more like, you know, even in little ways, um, which, which it's like, which is it? Is it ADHD? Is it addiction to excitement? I don't know, but you know, waiting until the last second to get a homework assignment done or a thing done, you know, um, But then at the same time, like really caring about things that I cared about and doing a great job with those, you know, and then I had healthy versions of that, like being in the school play or whatever. But there was definitely, I had a terrible fear of getting in trouble in a weird way with my family. Um, But there was some kind of thrill for me of in my tiny ways Mm -hmm. uh, acting, you know, like smoking cigarettes probably was the bigger one. It was like, and it was easy to get away with because the whole world smoked. So you always smelled like smoke. So it was like, you know, I didn't enjoy any of the times I got caught for things or in trouble, but there was always that because I was such a goody two shoes and my parents were so strict. It's like, I'm addicted to the excitement in other people too. Like was in love with like the class rebel in, in ninth grade, like the guy that like would always be doing like graffiti on the school and like doing all these pranks and like got all F's and like lived in his mom's basement. You know, it's like that kind of thing was like, I want to be around those people because they're so unlike me. And so that was, that was part of it too. It was like, who am I around? It's like the people that get to behave the ways that I wish I could, but I would get in so much trouble if I did. Yeah. We're, I was talking about this with a group of girls the other day about like with the addicted to excitement and how, um, you know how we get it, we get addicted to the chemicals that are like coming, but the, it, but it, but it's like not a pleasurable high, right? Like no. that is like this really sick and like insidious thing about it is that we like crave this, we crave this hit of shame that yeah. feels horrible. But it's also, you know, it started to manifest for me too, like as a teenager, like now I'm listening to depressing music, which I still love, but it's like, <laughs> you know, Instead of just saying like a more, let's say the normal version is, oh, my parents are really strict because my sisters were kind of like mildly rebellious. So they came down harder on me. I was the, you know, the youngest and oh, they won't allow me to date until I'm a little older. And so my friends have all this like experience of like kissing boys and, and how my boobs aren't growing. Cause I'm like this like scrawny little dancer kid. And like, <laughs> I wouldn't even have anything for them Your to Mozart. feel up if I did. <laughs> yeah. Mozart. And I'm like, 
God, you know, I'm so ashamed. Like, it's so embarrassing. Like, God, I wish I could date, but I can't. I'm such a crush on this boy. You know, that would be the normal thing. But the way I did it was like, well, if I'm not allowed to date and I'm not boobs yet, I am above it all. I'm celibate and I'm this. And I would sit in the cemetery and read poetry and write in my diary and just get these like, like you said, like hits of shame where it's like, I'm feeling and victim and pity. I feel so sorry for myself. And then it just becomes, instead of just saying, I'm this, I'm scared to kiss a boy for the first time because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, it's like, it turns into like, well, I don't want to do this anyway. But then when I was allowed to or able to, and then it was like, then it became, you know, all that went out the window and it became more like um, that kind of addicted to excitement of the excitement of just, again, awful feelings, the unrequited love, the crush, the like, I can't think about anything else. You know, everything else in my life is like taking a backseat. I mean, I'm 14, 15. I don't know exactly what's going on in my life, but, <laughs> but just, you know, just spending so much time friends, my girlfriends and I like feeding on each other's drama of, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff, but you know, I had other people to do it with. So it didn't seem that. No, that I strange, think it's probably pretty normal. It's pretty normal, but it is funny that there was a day that I feel like everyone else grew out of it and I didn't. And I was like, Oh, we don't do that. Oh, I'm still doing. Oh, okay. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Just hang out with 14 year olds for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel like it was with Brian number two. Like I felt like he just, as he kept getting older, like he just had to keep making like new friends that were like guys that were fresh out of college that would Oh, you know, drink as much as he wanted to drink. I'm like, why totally. are you 42 and all of your friends are 25? This is fucking weird. <laughs> right. He doesn't have anyone to be accountable to. Yeah. But I think I also had the fear of authority one, but it just doesn't always work with me because I always mouthed off to authority and was pretty unafraid to like speak up for things that were right. You know, like in high school, like yelling at teachers about like, their homophobic policies for the school prom and, you know, stuff like that. Like, and I got like a teacher fired at my college for sexually harassing me. You know, it's like, I never really feared authority. I just feared my parents. Like, I don't, I literally don't even know what, like, I just was like, I cannot get in trouble. It was just too overwhelming to think about. Yeah. (laughs) So when did you become um, financially independent? When I was 40. So what were the messages? What was the, yeah, the atmosphere around money and what it meant when you were growing up? Ooh, that's where my biggest messaging was from. It was, it's funny too, because when I look back at my family now, mm-hmm. I think we are the luckiest family in the world. So my dad wanted to be his whole life, a groundskeeper of a golf course. And to anyone listening, I know like golf courses get a bad rap and it's like rich people being, you know, assholes. And I, that's, I mean, I know it is now, but when I was younger, that wasn't my experience because the, the golf course my dad tended to was a smaller golf course and it was private, but it was, you know, um, I don't know if you, you're a plumber who owns his own business and you make good money and and you can join a golf club, but it didn't have pools and tennis. It wasn't um, high society crap, but I did live in a rich town. But if you were uh, living in this town and you were super, super rich, you'd probably go to this other country club in one town ever. But it was a town that really affluent town outside of Boston suburb. And my dad's salary, I don't think they could have afforded to buy a house in that town, but the house was came free with my dad's job. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, my parents were able to move to this like wealthy town in this in the 60s. And but it's like we lived in this little farmhouse that wasn't like the mansions and the whatever. But I mean, now that I know what it's like to be in the real world, if someone was like, here's a free house in a completely affluent town where the public schools are better than the private schools, it's completely safe. And yet only a 20 minute train ride to Boston. And the train is literally in your backyard. You can walk to it in four minutes and you have all this. You literally live on a golf course. You have the biggest backyard in town. I mean, I would be like, yeah, sign me up. I don't care if like there's one bathroom and, you know, but I was always in longing. So my parents always, you know, we had what I was so grateful for in the seventies is we had TV shows about the working class. Like my dad and I watched taxi and Sam Burden's on. And like, you know, we just watched all these shows about working class people. And so I felt very empowered and almost better than in a way than the rich kids. 80s was a lot of messages about class in movies and TV. And it was always like the rich people are assholes and the awesome people are not like pretty in pink, whatever. It was a big movie for me. And so, but the messages I got were people with money think they're better than us. And I didn't know who exactly these people were when they were around my pit. Like they weren't talking about specific people, you know? And it was always like, by the way, this house is free. And any minute now they could tell us to leave any minute. Now that wasn't true. That was their fear. They're still in the house and they're retired and 83 years old. How would they, how would they communicate that to you? They would just talk about it in front of me. Like, you know, there wasn't like, oh, this conversation is not for the kids to hear. It was like, I'm just at dinner with them alone, absorbing it all like a sponge. Yeah, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know it was scary until later, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure inside. Yeah, inside you knew. I know. It's the same thing for me, like listening to my parents fight. I wonder, I wonder, did you get any when you would listen to these conversations? Do you think that there was any sort of an adrenaline rush that you would get when you would hear your parents talk about this stuff? I can't remember. But all I know is that I had a big chip on my shoulder about money instantly and that it became the most important thing to me. Um, But I had a big chip on my shoulder about it was weird. My emotions went all over the place. It went from fuck these kids with money, which, by the way, they were assholes. So, yes, fuck them. And my other friends were also in the same like financial bracket as me. But there was this sense of. I'm telling you my house, my parents' house, the way I looked at it, you would have thought we lived in like literally a shack with like no toilet. Like it is such an adorable, small little farmhouse. Like it is so pleasant and cute. And I, I never would have had a rich kid over. It would have been too shameful, but it wasn't because of what the house actually was. It was because of the way my parents talked about it, you know? Like, oh, well, we love it, but, you know, it's not good enough. It was almost this thing of like, they kept telling me these other people were saying they weren't good enough and the house wasn't good enough. But I never heard anyone say that. So Mm -hmm. it's obvious it was their inner feelings. Mm -hmm. But I'm also sure that, yeah, people do, you know. But anyway, I remember like, like, I remember I was on the school bus with one of the rich girls. We were going to a field trip. And if you look out the window, the bus went by my house, um, if you look at my house in a certain angle, it looks really big. So we drove by on this road and I go, that's my house. And she goes, are you rich? Your house is huge. And it really is. It was like seven rooms. And I go, um, yeah, my dad owns the golf course. And they were like, wow. So I just like lie all the time, mm-hmm. you know? And then 
one of the rich girls invited me to her house and they had like an intercom system. Like she would intercom her mom, like bring me some lemonade. I mean, it was like a mansion, like crazy. And I just remember feeling like angry about it, like angry at her, like, Mm. and wanting that and just being like, I won't be happy until I have this house. And I would just come home and like, I love, but that was the weird thing. It's like, I loved my house, but I would be like, an obsessive rumination. Like I'm going to have a big house someday, which I still don't. And it's like, I'm going to have a big house. You know, I'm going to, Mm. so it was became obsessed with houses and it's like still something I talk about because I have shame that I don't own a house, but it's like, I don't want to, (laughs) but like, I feel like I should or something. And so then money became like, I became mad about it. I remember I stole some quarters from my dad's desk and I wrote my friend a note saying, um, my dad keeps like his quarters in his desk and I'm just going to steal from him. He won't know anyway. And they're too cheap to give me an allowance. And like, this is what I deserve for not living in a nice house. Like Mm. he found the note. Mm. And this is it. Where was it? Oh, my parents always went through my pockets when they were doing the laundry, you know, and my mom would totally just read things. And, you know, which is actually a total invasion of privacy. And like, I know Patrick Carnes talks about that in his books of like, that's actually violation. And like, but so my dad took me aside and said, you know, I love my job because I'm always home. I get to see you go to school in the morning and I'm here when you come home. And, you know, these other dads, they miss out on Halloween, you know, they don't get home in time. And they, because I remember the the girls at school were making fun of me for, I said something like we have dinner at five, which I thought was totally normal. And they were like, dinner at five. We don't have dinner till seven. So the weirdest things made me feel bad about myself. I was like, oh, why? And they're like, that's when our dads get home from work. Why is your dad home at five? And I'm like, he's home from work at 3 30, you know? And I was like, I just was like, I'm shit. Like, we eat dinner at five. You know, I was like, oh my God, sophisticated people that eat dinner after it's dark out. And that was like that, all that was in the note. And my dad was like, I'm so glad we have dinner at five. We're all together. Then we can watch TV and, you know, I go to bed early and get up at five. And he's like, these girls, their dads work in the city. And some of them like have drinking problems. They go to the bar after work and they don't get home till eight because they don't want to see their families. And I was like, oh, really? And so then I was like, he totally like whipped me around. And so I had this bizarre relationship with money. And then there was the rebellion in my teens where I had my own job, but I would spend all my money on like Doc Martin boots or whatever. And my dad would go, you know, should start a little savings. Just, I don't care about savings. I'm living for today and I don't care about money <laughs> and I don't need money. And he's like, uh-huh. And he's like, I want you to write me a letter telling me you don't need money and we're going to open it when you're older. I'm like, that's fine. And I wrote him that letter when I was 16. And then I don't know if we ever found it, but certainly I don't agree with that anymore. And, and so that, that those were the messages I was getting, though, that was like, you know, it's tough being us. These people think they are better than us. And it really wasn't until like five years ago. I was like, oh my God, my family is the luckiest family on goddamn earth with, with all they were given. And because they didn't have to pay a mortgage or the electricity, we got to, I got to have like, not designer, but like cute clothes. And we went to Disney World once a year and they got to save. And now my, you know, parents have like a really nice savings. They don't own a house, but it's just different kind of, liquid assets, you know, it's as opposed to like a house. And so it's just a different way to live. It's like not a big deal, but it was 
the cloud over my head the whole time. Um, so then when do you remember the moment that you realized, huh, I have money issues? Mm, it's funny because my issues were large and loud, but I didn't realize they were issues <laughs> until I was in my early 20s or late 20s. Sorry, late 20s. Um, Cause I was just like reckless and like, I didn't understand the value of money. And I think my parents did try to teach me, but it's just unteachable. And I think they just gave up. Like sometimes my dad would just say a statement, like you're not good with money. So it was just like, we left it there, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I remember my cousin, my it's my mom's brother's kid. He was like two years younger than me. He was like really into money. Um, not in a gross way. Like he just had a savings mm -hmm. since he was a kid. And every year we'd go and his like piggy bank would be heavier and heavier. And he just loved saving. It was like fun for him. And then he opened a bank account, like saved. And I was just remember thinking like that dork, even though like I admired it, it was such a weird, <laughs> you know, that combination of feelings uh -huh. where you're just like, ew, but you're secretly like, I don't know what that is. I wish I was doing. <laughs> and you know, like I had my own bank account when I was a teenager too. But anyway, the, the money stuff, it was like, I took out all these credit cards in college and like I literally did not know you had to pay them back. I, I, this is how stupid I was like, and I'm being silly. I wouldn't really say horrible things about myself, but I thought you could move and change addresses and they'd never find you like <laughs> legit. Didn't That's know not that. how it works. No, you better, oh. you better get right oh, with shit. that. <laughs> I'm, glad I'm learning. But uh, I would say it was um, when I realized I had money issues it was when I realized it was an emotional issue. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got mad at a friend who, um, she's still my friend today. And she's, she was always instrumental in a couple moments in my life where she would be like, your attitude fucking blows, you know? And she'd never been to therapy or anything like that. She was just a little more well-adjusted and ironically, like the wheels have come off some things in her life and now she's in therapy, you know? But, um, she said to me, we went to this, she asked me to go to this, um, flea market in Pasadena that is really fun. And you can buy like, you know, not antiques in an expensive way, like a $10 cool thing for your apartment. And I was so broke that I didn't even know if my ATM card was going to work. And so I went with her and I was already resentful because I was like, why is she asking me to do stuff? I have no money and I can't do this and I can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. But why would she think I was so broke? I had a day job. I was like temping and at a very cheap apartment. Like there was no reason to believe I was as broke and in debt as I was. Mm -hmm. And we go to the place and she takes a hundred dollars out of her account. And I was just like, whoa, that's a lot of money, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I put my ATM in and I took out 20 and she's like, you're paying a $3 fee on that. Like, why wouldn't you just take out a hundred? She's like, this money will last me like, you know, a month or whatever. Um, and you're going to have to pay a fee. And if you take out like a hundred bucks this month, like that's three times, you know, whatever, I'm sorry, three times. She's like, that's five times three, that's 15 bucks. You know, that's almost a whole whatever. And I'm like, what? And I was like, listen to me. Not everyone's rich like you. Not everyone has parents that like, blah, 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 blah. and she wasn't rich at all. She's like literally not rich. And I was like, I don't even know if there's 20 in here. And like, it's a miracle. This even came out of the thing, and <laughs> you know, and she was just like, oh my God, like you're being so mean to me right now. And like, you're like, get it together. Like, do you know, you really don't know what's in your account? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, that's not because you're not rich. Like that's because I don't know what she said, but it was just something like, you got issues, you know, girl. I, <laughs> I got issues. And I was like, oof, you know, mm. it, it really impacted me. And so mm. I, uh, yeah, that's when I realized like, God, this is really emotional for me. Like it's, it's not just, uh, 
emotional in the sense that when you are broke, it's like hard, you know, cause yeah. So I knew like something's up here that I, I can't even look at it. I can't even like take an honest look at what my earning is as opposed to when I'm not earning and like how much I owe and like other things. And like, I'm mad at the world about it and it's like completely fixable, you know? And so then, I mean, I think that what happens for most of us is that we remain in a place of kind of like awareness before we're ready to like take action. And like, we kind of have to sit in this awareness that we have issues until it makes us so fucking uncomfortable that we're willing to take action. So was that your experience? Yeah. I think I just sort of stayed where I was for a while. What's a while? Years? I don't remember. No, not that long. It could have been only like six months, but I think it was, um, it just, I, it just gave different glasses for me. So I was living with these, um, like renting a room from these two weirdos that I met on Craigslist (laughs) (laughs) in Los Villas, um, or Los Feliz, Los Angeles. And it was like a really nice apartment. And then I found out like they were overcharging me for rent and, mm. and, uh, you know, I was like, like my car broke down and I, I remember buying this car really cheaply off someone. And like literally three days later, this thing called the water pump on it broke. And I just was like stopped in the middle of the street on sunset Boulevard. Like the car just died. And I was like hysterically crying. And I called the guy and he's like, the water pump breaks when the car is old. Like there are no signs of it before. Like I didn't sell you something with a faulty anything. Like that's, that's the risk you took. I didn't when you buy an old car. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I was just like, I just felt like such a victim. And I remembered that I had been just gone out of a relationship where the boyfriend at the time, his sister had said to me, you're such a victim about everything. Mm -hmm. And I literally didn't know she was insulting me. And I said to her, I know I, right. I am a victim completely. Like she gets it. She's giving me sympathy. And I was, and she's like, no, you're acting like you're not a victim of anything. And I was like, oh, and it was like, you know, when I first moved to LA, I ended up working at this fancy golf club as a waitress. And that was the nepotism in my family. My dad called this greenskeeper he knew in Beverly Hills because they all had this like internet message board group and they hired me, but I was the only white person on staff. And it was the most insane experience I'd ever had because all the club members were white and they would cut, they would, it was almost laughable because they were like, excuse me, miss, what are you doing? I'm a waitress. Why? Well, I'm an actor and a comedian and I want to this, I can waitress during the day and do my stuff at night. And are your parents alive? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, they acted like I was like, you know, on death row or something. Like, what are you doing? I remember this woman went, but well, you've got a pretty face. You could catalog model at least. Like, <laughs> I remember the Mexican guys in the kitchen were like, where's your man? You can't get a man to take care of you. You're a white princess. Like, why aren't you using your whiteness? It was crazy. And I was like, what is everyone talking about this? Like whiteness. And I mean, it was so weird. And so that experience being like, I'm working there. I don't fit in anywhere. This is really gross. I don't like seeing this amount of the only thing that kept me from feeling not less than was like most of the people didn't golf. They sat around drinking for nine hours, you know, and they seemed very unhappy. And so I was like, okay, you know, money can't buy everything. But it was like everything in my life was wrong. Like I had a breakup, the car, the job I hated, the roommates are weird. And I was like, but I have a feeling that even without all of this, 
that I can point to that's wrong, that something would still feel wrong with mm-hmm. money. Like some, I don't know what it was. And so I ended up moving out of that place. I met a friend who's a comedian and she and I moved into a place and she was going to debtors anonymous. And she told me about it. And it was, it was again, someone like seeing me, like she saw me in a way that my friend had seen me, but she had a solution. And so she said, you know, if you want to go and, um, and I went and I went under the guise of thinking I'm doing like, again, it was like, uh, oh, well, I don't want to go to that because I'm not like a gambling addict or anything. I'm not like a, you know, shopping addict. That's what I thought it was. I went and realized, oh, I'm under earning and you know, that's okay. Sometimes you just can't find the right work, but I'm, I'm under earning and I'm being vague about my money because it's, it's so scary to look at. Like, so I don't know how much is in my bank account and, oh, that did, you know, that account did um, go to the collection agency. And like, I, I couldn't look at it because I was so afraid. I'm not sure of what, but I was just too afraid to look at things. And so even just going for a couple of weeks and, seeing everything there was like, it, it was different than if someone had, you know, signed me up with a money class with Susie Orman or something, because I, it was a very practical 12 step program where you meet with people and they do your numbers and you figure out everything and they, but it's an emotional and spiritual program too, where you make a budget and they tell you, you have to budget in, you know, what makes you happy? Well, I like to buy flowers. Okay. So you have to budget money for flowers every week and massage once a month. And I'm like, but I can't because I owe this to my credit card. And my black and white thinking was like, I'll get out of debt when I have enough money to pay off all the credit cards, but I can't take care of myself until then. Mm -hmm. And they were like, do you understand that? Like you're putting yourself worth in like this magical day, which might come, you, you could, you know, sell a sitcom and there you go, but um, you haven't learned to take care of yourself. So you could get into this position again. And so Mm -hmm. I needed that like spiritual and emotional landing while I was learning how to handle my money. It wasn't just like, I'm bad with money. I need a course. It was like, my emotions are tied in with money. And I like, Mm. don't love myself enough to take care of my money. And that was eye-opening to me. And so I realized, my God, I never was a, uh, I was a self-debtor. It wasn't quite shopping there was people in the rooms yeah, that were shopping at it like when you said yeah. oh i thought it was shopping like somebody with a shopping addiction but it wasn't mm-hmm. so like can you explain what you mean by that and just to kind of explain what um what da is kind of maybe like the underlying like tenants and principles and then also what you mean by under earning yeah so debtors anonymous it does cover a lot i mean now i've heard that they break off into they, they even have an under earners anonymous yeah, and is. And there's business debtors anonymous and all this. And, and there's a mix of all kinds of people in the room, you know? Um, so some people are shopping addicts and they, it's like, they can't hang on to money that they, they may not be in any debt, but they can't save. And they just shop, buy things they don't need to fill that emotional void. Same as like, you know, drinking or drugs. And then there's gambling addicts, not a lot of those in the room, but, um, and then people that are just drowning in debt, don't know how to get out. and you know, maybe the initial thing was me being a ding dong college kid and signing up for credit cards that came in the mail and, and really not knowing how money worked. And then when the chickens came home to roost and my bills are going into collection, 
and it's affecting my credit score. So I can't get an apartment that's in a decent area of town. I can't even get one at all unless my parents co-sign or my roommate puts it in their name. When you start seeing the repercussions of not knowing about money and having done these like silly things as a 20-year-old, then it becomes a spiritual problem depending on how you look at yourself after going, oh my God, I made the dumbest mistakes. Well, I didn't have the ability to just say, oh my God, I made the dumbest mistakes. Ugh, now I got a bad credit score. Let me figure this out. Let me talk to a lawyer. Let me go to a money course. It was like, I had a deeply emotional problem around this, like a very spiritual problem. I was like a little kid. And so when you go to Debtors Anonymous, you go and you talk about all the ways in which you undercut yourself. So whether it's you're at a job and you're afraid to ask for a raise, or you go into a job interview and they say, what would you like to earn? And you say, you know, a number that you can't possibly live on, but you just don't think you're worth anything more. You think if I tell them, they're just going to say, get out. What are you kidding? Get out of here. Instead of like, no, you give them a big number. They negotiate you down and you go, great. That's what I wanted anyway. You know, I didn't, it's just like, you realize I, if you had said to me before I walked in, do you have good self-esteem? I'd be like, ah, oh, fuck yeah, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm on stage. I don't give a fuck. I'll bomb. Blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know I had bad self-esteem in that, like, my parents gave me every tool they possibly could in terms of like knowing how to take care of myself. But on this emotional level, I could not give a shit enough about myself to not constantly be in money drama. So that's kind of what it is. It's like it's way more than I'm bad with money. It's like I'm bad with money and now I hate myself because of it. Now I can't even look at what I've done. I don't even know how to budget. I I keep just that vagueness of going, what am I going to do about this? Oh, I'm not going to think about it, but someday I'll just get a lot of money and then I'll fix it all. That kind of like thing. One day I'll stop and really look at this, but not today because how could I change it? And uh, so that's kind of what it is. It's like, Debting could literally mean like you keep putting things on your credit card, even though your interest fee is higher than, you know, if if you have a credit card that doesn't make you pay it off every month, you might have a $2,000 balance every month and pay 20 bucks. And now the interest, and now you owe 3000 and you're just living on credit. That's some people did that. And some people like me couldn't get credit cards anymore because all of them were in collections. So I literally had no money, no safety net, nothing no savings, you know, and no, um, and, and wasn't even looking for jobs. Like didn't even know I was allowed to look for jobs that could pay well, because I was like, well, I'm an artist, so I can't commit to any job because then I won't be an artist. Like I won't have time to do all my stuff. And it's like, I didn't have time to do all my stuff anyway. Any job you have, that's not what you do. Like that's not your art will take up time. So, you know, that's life tough crap, but I was always just like, I think it was more of a self-esteem thing. Like I didn't even know I could ask to make more money or whatever. Or And so it's that kind of thing. And then business debtors, I didn't own a business, so I can't really speak to it, but there were business owners and there are even just people who aspired to be business owners and kind of called their hobby that they were getting off the ground their business. They could start looking at it that way in advance. But a lot of times business debtors were like people that were in real trouble with, with their business. Their employees were, you know, they were borrowing from themselves, borrowing from credit to pay employees, you know, everything was kind of a mess. So it's all that kind of thing, but it's really a program about learning to still love yourself despite looking at the mess that you might have and the messes you've made and learning, you know, when we borrow money from people, they're kind of 
in a way allowed to treat us however they want. So a lot of people had dysfunctional relationships, people they borrowed money from. And that was one thing we learned, like you can accept gifts, but you cannot borrow money anymore. And things like that, like just kind of weaning you off your, your bad habits. What has been like the most, you know, you've talked about, like, you feel like today that you have self-esteem, that you truly do have self-worth, um, other things like what has been instrumental in, in your healing, like talk about your healing journey Mm -hmm. and what do you think really was the, the secret sauce for you? Because I mean, there's so many different paths. Yeah. We have to figure out what works for us. I think it was a combination for me. It's always been therapy and like, because my biggest disorder is anxiety disorders. Um, so obviously cognitive behavior therapy around that stuff, but also, um, just having as many experiences as possible. So kind of saying yes to things and knowing, uh, kind of saying yes to things. I'll give the perfect example. It's like my biggest thing in life was fear of flying and I now don't have one, but it was like my identity since I was a kid. And is it completely I started, removed now? Yeah. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, I don't lo- like now it's just normal things that like, I I'm prone to like air sickness if there's too much turbulence. So I'm more like, Oh, I I'm like not in the mood to get nauseous, but like, it's not a panic attack of terror. <laughs> Is anyone? And I, yeah. And I might still have one, but it's like, I'm pr- like, I have like a prescription of like clonopin that I keep in my purse in case I'm ever like having such a panic attack that it's going to be really, really bad. And so if I had clonopin like, in my purse, I would be having a panic attack every single second of the day. I know. Isn't it so funny? Like, it's so funny when like my addict friends are like, so you just have it and like, it might expire. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) but, and it's like, but it's in my purse in case I have a panic attack on a plane and, and I really just need, but in the past (laughs) it wouldn't matter. You could put me on anesthesia and I would panic, you know, but anyway, so my point is that like, so once I kind of started to get a little better with it, I could sort of fly around America was doing some gigs but I had a job where we got invited to go to Australia. And that was always my motto is um, I'll probably be able to fly around America because I have to, but I'll never go to Australia, even though I was like obsessed with it and always wanted to go. I was like, can't fly there too long, 18 hours over the ocean, like never doing it. I don't, I will never, ever, ever be healed enough to do that. And my boss came to me and he said, I get that you can't fly to Australia, so you don't have to join us. You can just you know, work from home, but, um, the hours are going to be weird. Cause it's like a day ahead. And I almost took him up on that. Cause it was so relaxing to not go. And then I went, there's gotta Lots be a reason life. I'm being, yeah, there's, Lots there's, and I went and I didn't have all the tools and it was awful. And it was scary in a lot of parts, even just being. And then after that, like, I honestly felt my mind expand when I got back, like the way people talk about doing like LSD or something like which I've never done, but I, I was like, I'm different. Like I'm different, you know? And I, since then have gone to Australia four times by myself, um, for comedy stuff. And honestly, I can tell you there's been times when the plane landed and I didn't want to get off because I was just having so much fun on the 18 hour flight. So it's stuff like that. It's like actually having an experience that has healed me because I get to be my own scientist and say, don't lean on, you know, it's not people saying anymore, lean on my faith. It's like, I actually did this. So mm-hmm. saying yes to things when I've been given the opportunity to not do it, 
has been helpful. And that was like a big example. And then for me, where I really learned the self-esteem was friendships and that kind of working on that kind of intimacy with friends and being totally myself with people trying to erase every shame. This friend, you know, has something I want. It's okay. I can be myself in front of them. Um, Mm. You know, I was single for a few years on purpose because I was working on my intimacy with my friends. And I, I no longer, when people compliment me, I no longer go, Oh, they don't know the real me. I don't do that in my head. And when people compliment me and say, Hey, you have a nice energy. I'm not like, what? I'm like, yeah, I do. And, and that has been miraculous to be like, not an, you know, you know, that it's not egotistical. It's just truly going, I want more of that. And then I want to make other people feel that way. And it just keeps, it just keeps, um, the good addiction is that is so addictive is feeling good, making others feel good. So for me, it's like being very intimate with good friends. Mm -hmm. And, um, part of that is caring about other people. Like when I had so many things going on and phobias and fears and money troubles and this troubles and that troubles, it was like, I was always navel gazing and always in my own head. So many things I don't remember even because I just wasn't present. And so I think the gift for me has been really having friends that I love and that love me and that they're, I'm in touch with them often and I care about their lives and I'm, I have room to think about what they're doing. And so that for me has been the comfort that I've always been seeking that I didn't find in relationships. I didn't find in having a certain amount of money. I didn't have, I didn't find in having like a perfect house growing up. It's truly like the love I feel for myself the love I feel for my friends and the faith I have in like, um, I'm, I'm just, I think a lot of adult childs don't have fun either. Like fun's a priority for me. Mm-hmm. And, but like a lot of adult childs, I can have fun doing, I don't need a lot to have fun. I don't need to be like at the club at 2am dancing, you know, Fuck that. In the like, <laughs> I could have fun sitting home reading a book, but I know the difference between isolating and like truly enjoying myself. So I think that's been important too. Cause I think a lot of times I isolated thinking I was doing self-care. So I think it's all stuff like that. And it's really, really simple. And it's the stuff that seems to come easy for other people. If we decide to take everyone else's inventory as we look around, but it's been <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. you know, <laughs> and realizing that I'm really lucky because I think most people, maybe they don't have it as bad, or maybe they weren't in debt like I was, or maybe they don't have the fear of flying like I do, but most people, um, as I look around are probably confused, hurting, don't like it. And I feel so lucky that I did feel so awful. Mm. I did make so many mistakes. I had to clean up mm. that I got the opportunity to live a different way that is really thriving. And I think I'm not, I would never trade places with someone who grew up well-adjusted because I don't know their limitations. And I, I honestly, yeah. I, and it's not like, I love dysfunction. It's like, no, no, no. I actually think I might be um, in a better place, maybe. I don't know. But it is. It's opportunities for growth, right? I just feel like yeah. the more pain, <laughs> the more opportunities for growth and to live a very um, deep and meaningful life. Yeah. Like I, I am so fulfilled. It, it almost scares me because, um, mm. you know, it's scary that. to feel fulfilled. What did you say? I said, I love that. Yeah. That's like such a beautiful thing to say. 
It almost scares me because I'm neurotic because it feels like, oh, is this what happens? And then you die. Like you finally yeah. feel good. And then you, yeah. then it's like, that's the Catholic stuff in me. That stuff my grandmother used to say. She always used to be like, I always complain a little bit. So God doesn't take me <laughs> like that was she lived to 99. So I'm just saying we can go to adult child all we want. But my Nana, I'm just going to throw her thing in here. She said, if you complain a little bit every day, God keeps you around to figure it out. So I'm like, I, I didn't figure it all out yet. It sucks. But, uh, no, but it's true. <laughs> did you have a, did you have a, an accent at one point when you were younger? Did you have a Boston accent? Oh, I thought you said an accident. I was like, I don't no, think no, so. No. Um, <laughs> I did. Oh, I totally had an accent and I didn't think I did until I heard some, my friends and I used to tape each other talking like audio cassette and uh, send each other tapes, which would now be like a voice memo, you know? And like, so my friends over the summer when I didn't see them, in high school or college, we'd, we'd mail tapes and, uh, so cute. I found one of them and oh my God, I was like, oh my God, you guys, I was at seven 11 and I was buying a pack of butts and I saw John and he's so cute, but I couldn't say anything. So I didn't want to look stupid. Like that was my accent. Did you like consciously work to get rid of it or it just happened naturally over time? Like through acting classes? I think it happened actually over time, but there was a class. I went to um, Emerson College in Boston, which is like a mm -hmm. acting school. And there was a class called voice and articulation where you they took your accent, whatever it was away from you. I just don't remember the class. Like, I don't remember much and I don't remember the class. I just know I took it. And I'm thinking maybe that is what did it, because when I look at like and I don't look at, but I have seen tapes of me starting out in comedy, which is only a couple of years later. I didn't have an accent. So I think the class did it. And, you know, weird things influence me living in New York. Um, I might pick up pronouncing something the way a New Yorker does living in California. I might pick up pronunciations there. So I have sort of a bizarre accent now that has a little California to it, I think, for sure. And then every once in a while, I'm like, that's horrible, which is like a New York word, but it just comes out that way now for me. And uh, once in a while, like I might have a Boston accent. It just will like fly out on certain words. But You're gonna keep it spicy, girl. I used to have one. I almost wish I still did. I almost my family. Oh my god, their accents are out of control. They don't think they have one though. I'm sure. <laughs> so talk about your podcast. Your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. So I wanted to start a podcast about about helping people with fear of flying, and then it was like right before the um, first lockdown happened, and I was like, okay, well this isn't gonna be a thing because I was going to fly with people and. So anyway, I have a podcast called Anxiety Bites. It's sort of a play. So it's like anxiety sucks, but anxiety bites. And so I interview someone every week and we talk about anxiety, whether I'm interviewing a neuroscientist, you can help explain it that way, or I'm interviewing a psychiatrist or a meditator or you know anything, a professor. And I want to have serious conversations that's not comedic, but because I'm a comedian, I want them to be a little irreverent. So there's swearing yes. and there's, you know, fun and, and laughter. And my whole point of it is like, you know, I seriously have anxiety, but I don't have to take it so seriously. So there's just this sense of it's, it's very common. It's not that big a deal. And I I'm doing it for the person that doesn't know what it is and mm -hmm. Googles it. Maybe my podcast comes up. Cause I, I had this misconception that people younger than me have it easier and that they're all doing okay because they have Google. And I didn't have it when I was having panic and anxiety. Um, there was no internet until I was in my late mid twenties. So I'm a kid and I don't know what's wrong with me. And I just assume I'm insane because I'm having panic attacks. And so I'm like, Oh, everyone's so lucky now they can just Google it. And the thing is they don't, they don't know where to start. And everyone thinks like 
they're not normal or, oh my God, I didn't know I was, I thought I was the only one. And I'm still blown away. How can you think you're the only one when there's so much stuff on the internet, but that's what anxiety tells you. You're the only one. So I'm trying to help anyone on any level, whether it's, oh my God, I've been in therapy 30 years. I know everything. Oh, but I listened and I heard something I needed to hear, or I don't know where to start. I'm just listening and seeing if maybe this applies to me kind of thing. So yeah, it's everywhere free where you get podcasts and I love doing it. I've got like 20 out so far. Well, Anxiety Bites, I will include it in the show notes. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you about... um like the role of like comedy and connecting that to your dysfunctional upbringing and all that stuff. So we'll just have to have you back on because there's- Well, have you, we'll have me back on because I have very strong thoughts on that, that I don't think they're related, but we'll talk. Okay. But I think they're related, but they're not in the, in the yeah. I'll come back on. Okay. We'll well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Uh, as always, I know that you did. Thanks again to Jen. That was great. Go check out her podcast, Anxiety Bites, and hopefully I can uh, make an appearance on there sooner rather than later. Uh, you again can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. You can join the Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Adult Child. Um, next week, you know, I might just be getting real and raw and vulnerable about everything that's going on in my world. Um, I have a couple interviews, but um, yeah, I uh, I think it might be time for me to just really have a heart to heart. Um, I have a lot going on in my world and have been for the past couple of weeks and um, it's exciting and it's scary and um, yeah, I'm in the midst of growth, which means that it's been a little bit uncomfortable for me lately. Uh, But, you know, experience has shown me that uh, these moments when I get to the other side, I feel better and stronger than ever before and more connected to myself and to my higher power. So... I'm just crossing my finger that <laughs> that I'm having that experience again. Uh, so yeah, I love you guys so much. Thanks again for listening. And I'm going to see you all next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super, it's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.